What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I am talking to Robert James Gabriel. He's the founder of a company called Helperbird. Robert, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So tell us about Helperbird. What is it exactly? So uh, Helperbird uh, was a side project that initially started about three years ago. And what Helperbird is, is a, is a tool for any browser to help people with learning difficulties, such as dyslexia, dyspraxia, uh, light sensitivity disorder, or even people who have epilepsy. And what Helperbird does, it allows the user to have complete customization over the web. And what do I mean by that? Some users can find the, the background colors a bit harsh, so they can customize it to a blue color or a green color. They can change the fonts, the color of the fonts, add overlays, text-to-speech, speech-to-text, add a built-in note system. Uh, you can remove all distracting images and ads and kind of customize the web to your own needs. And we also do a thing for epilepsy where we can remove flashing images as well. So you can like mix and match all these features and make the web easier for you to make it easier to learn, you know, to kind of browse the web a lot easier. And I know that Helperbird started off as a side project, but you've grown it to five figures a month in revenue. Are you full-time on it yet? Yes, full-time as of November last year, uh, November 2018. So before that point was a lot of, you know, when I got a little bit of time after work or, you know, just doing a few support emails. And then about, yeah, just after I kind of started on it full-time, we got a surge in users. And it was just over good SEO. And that's what I put the real credit down to. And just the constant updates. So every two weeks, I try to release new features. And then January 2019, it just ballooned up to 29,000 users. Wow. And then the next one to 39,000. And then it's just been growing, growing, growing. I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. And it's some users have left. They've come back. And I've got emails saying, oh, you messed up a couple of months ago. But mm-hmm. So it's been, it's been a fun ride. And uh, yeah, so it's been about just over a year now of being on it full time. Very cool. So we're going to dive into some of those uh, mistakes you've made along <laughs> the way and some of those successes too, which it sounds like there are quite a few of. But first, I'm interested in just your motivations as an indie hacker. Why did you start working on Helperbird? Yeah, this is, this, you're actually the first person to ask me this question. And um, so about, about May kind of 2018, I was feeling very burnt out and very down from like, you know, not managing my work life and not managing my personal life. And I just needed a break. So I decided to take a sabbatical from the place I was working full time as a software engineer and a manager. And I decided to travel the world and kind of regrow and reload and rediscover what I loved, which was engineering and helping people. And along the way, I was doing these different side projects and like different apps and just kind of exploring the world. And I went to France, Greece, Spain, uh, or across the US, across Canada saving up all this money. So I was very privileged in that way to do it. But along the way, I made this Netflix app. And with that, all it did was it scraped, used a puppeteer script, and it scraped all Netflix's hidden categories, hidden menus, their whole site, and made a Chrome extension that would allow you to browse these very easily and save your favorite hidden categories. So if you love movies with Steve Martin that are horror, they have a category for that. But two months later, it got bought out. And it was thanks to your site and thanks to... Uh, product hunt uh, from them discovering it. And that was a thrill. 
And in that itself, it kind of relit something in me. And I knew that I always wanted to work for myself. And I was always like browsing indie hackers and I was always browsing Hacker News and Product Hunt and Reddit. And then I discovered like when I went through school, I didn't have the tools. If I hadn't mentioned it already, I'm dyslexic and I didn't have the tools or the support really until I was about 17. And that's very late to properly get the support you need to be dyslexic or any type of learning difficulty. And I was even told to drop out of school because I was considered dumb or wouldn't be successful. So at that point in November in Spain with my fiance, I decided to register the name helperbird.com, which was a kind of a pet project of mine up to that point where all it did was change the font. And kind of overnight, I started like talking to people with dyslexia, started, you know, kind of understanding what the needs were. And then a personal family friend gave me an idea of a bunch of different features I should add. And then January came along and there was 20 odd thousand people after discovering it just from good word of mouth and the constant updates and the good SEO. So the reason I kind of went on it is because I know what the issues of people who have dyslexia have. And I don't want anyone to grow up with those struggles or issues or don't have that level of support. And that's why the price is actually quite low. People are telling me I should increase the pricing, but no, it's a very affordable for every kid, every school, because they don't have a high budget. Yeah. On your product page on ND Hackers, you talk a little bit about growing up with dyslexia. And you said that as somebody with dyslexia who was told to drop out of school before I was diagnosed, as my teachers told my parents that I wouldn't become anything, yeah. you say that you wish you were making this up. You understand the struggles that users have online. And it just gets me thinking about the feedback loops of encouragement and discouragement and how when you have people telling you that you're not going to succeed and really discouraging you, then it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you, you might not try as hard because you don't think you can do it. And the opposite is also true where you know, I was lucky enough to have a lot of encouragement from adults when I was a kid. A lot of people told, telling me that they thought I could accomplish things and could do things. And as a result of that, I think I tried harder because I expected it of myself. How do you sort of turn things around when you've had so much discouragement uh, from a young age and make something of yourself that you're proud of? It's actually very funny. Similar to what you said was I had a te- one teacher in particular, my physics teacher, of course, it's always the science teacher, uh, who's very kind of mentoring me and like encouraged me to always go forward. And he actually got me into like programming at an earlier age, just after I got diagnosed. And he kind of helped me and got me internships and got me like right into the right path. Because before that point, as you said, with that loop of encouragement or discouragement, you can go down a bad path. And I'm very lucky that there at least there was someone in the educational system to help me. So with, with him, with him in particular, uh, his name's Sean Foley, if he happens to listen to this, he, he got me into programming. He drove up to Dublin, which is a four hour journey. He brought like a student up there to go to the competitions. And we ended up winning the school like 10,000 euro in a Ooh. scholarship off a program I wrote. But the reason I bring that up in particular is I had a teacher not even two months earlier who told me I didn't deserve the A I got in our state exams because I wasn't, my English wasn't good enough. But she didn't know my English grammar was ignored because I had dyslexia. You were just looking for the content, not the grammar or the spelling. Right. So she came up and apologized to me, not even after the award came true. And she goes, I totally underestimated you and I shouldn't have said that to you and stuff like that. So it's some people just aren't educated in terms of some difficult, learning difficulties in schools. Yeah, it's it's really tough. Well, I look at some of the things you've done since then. I'm, I'm on your personal website, robertgabriels.ninja. Oh. <laughs> Uh, and you've got a list, a section that says apps and projects. And you say, in your spare time, you work and maintain 
all these different apps. And there's nine of them, plus more on GitHub. You've got Helperbird, you've got an app called Open Dyslexic. You had the one you mentioned earlier that got bought, Netflix Hidden Categories, SyncSnip, Markdown Editor for Chrome, just app after app after app. Uh, how are you so prolific? How do you create so many things and see them through to completion? So a lot of those are boredom, or in particular, it's just I want, there's not, uh, when I look for an app, if it's not there, I'll go off and try to make it. And then if more than 100 people like it, I'll start developing it or, or spend half a day a week doing it. But in most cases, is if the issue is annoying me, I know it's annoying someone else. And that's why, especially with Chrome extensions, they're so quick to get up there and out to a huge market. So that's why I always encourage people to do it. There's two up there, if you don't mind me telling this story, that got me cease and desist letters. One of them, I was listening to the Rooster Teeth podcast about four years ago, and they talk about the Xbox uh, One. Uh, I don't know if you have one, but you can like, re- oh, you can record, you know how you can record your videos and mm-hmm. uh, photos and your screenshots? They were talking about they wish they could have a website where you could see your friends or easily download them on your computer. And at the time, you couldn't. And this was 2 a.m. New Year's Eve or the day before New Year's Eve. And I was on the Xbox website and I noticed the API was not private, meaning it was open without any authentication. So I created a little website, a little app that allowed you to put in anyone's gamer tag. And then um, it would show all their videos, show all their photos for any gamer tag, even if your friends are not. And I tweeted the founder of Rooster Teeth and he tweeted it out and just went mini viral. And uh, I posted on Reddit, and then Reddit started uh, tagging Major Nelson, their their community manager, and he goes, oh, hey, I still have this screenshot. Uh, I don't think the Xbox team's going to like this. And not even a week later, <laughs> <laughs> it got sh- the API got shut down, and a week later, the cease and desist letter came in, and I have it oh, framed. So yeah, I have it framed up in my parents' room uh, back in <laughs> Ireland. And then another one was, um, this was last year, I... I don't really like having like too much social media on my phone, but my brothers and sisters all use Instagram messaging to stay in contact. So I created a Chrome extension that would allow you to have direct messaging on the desktop version of Instagram. And from there, uh, it got very popular very quick overnight as because that feature is missing and got off the plane in Greece and I got this huge letter you must take this down immediately. This is against our copyright, our terms and conditions. And that, that one was scary. So that one went down yeah. immediately. So uh, it's a lot of, but the one story I'm kind of, the reason I told you these too is just from when you create new projects, it's always from issues that you personally have. So in that case, I want to direct messaging. So I went off and made it. You know, it's really common to see founders starting things because they solve their own problem. But I also talk to people probably every day who tell me that they can't come up with any ideas, they don't have any ideas, and they're looking for problems in their life, but they just can't seem to find any that are worth solving. What do you think is the difference between you and people who struggle to see problems in their life that they can build something for? That's actually a very good question. And I I can't give you a a proper answer, but what I could give you is an answer. What I think is, uh, is is that it's curiosity. And I think people have different levels of curiosity. Uh, my parents, if they end up listening to this as well, will remember times when I ripped apart phones when I was 12 years old just to see how they worked or painted them over. And I just love taking stuff apart and seeing how all the mechanics work. And in that case, if I know there's an Xbox feature, again, I will look through all the network logs until I find that open one and develop it first. So I do think it's down to curiosity. Not not, less, not necessarily motivation, but yeah. curiosity. Yeah, because people can be motivated at different levels, but curiosity is a different thing that not people have different levels with. So let's talk about uh, curiosity 
as it applies to Helperbird. What were you curious about when you first started Helperbird and what were some of the first steps that you took to bring it to life? So uh, it started in, I think, like January 9, 2015 was like the first pit project stage where I was starting an internship with a project management software um, company called Teamwork.com in Cork. Going from college to an actual working environment in an internship is a huge jump. And uh, they gave me like a month of time to like just get familiar with the stack and kind of get familiar with the code base and any tools. So I decided to make like a very simple Chrome extension using Knockout JS at the time and using SaaS and different technologies. And I saw this open. I said, I have dyslexia. I might as well try to find a font. And I found the open dyslexic font. And I just made this Chrome extension. All it did was inject the code on the page and change the font. That's that's all it did. Very simple. Looked horrible. I wanted to learn how to publish it. So I published it. Then I forgot about it and just, you know, never never actually used it myself, to be honest. And like two months later, my friend came up and I happened to log into the dashboard. And I saw there was 2,000 users just, just using it. Wow. No, no promotion, nothing. And I went, whoa. <laughs> and... The next version, I just cleaned it up and added, you know, a bit of performance and just, you know, set up an email. So if anyone had any issues, but no one really did. And then um, Abby, I can't pronounce his last name, who owns, who created the Open Dyslexic font, which is a op- uh, free open source one. He came along to me and asked me, did I want to help develop the actually the official font Chrome extension? Because it was getting uh, riddled in bad reviews because it didn't have a feature of being able to turn it on and off. It was, if you installed it in Chrome extension, that was it. So I went off and then re, uh, rebuilt it. And all I did was add a toggle button and it grew from, I think, 42,000 users to, I think as of last night, like just under 250,000 people are using that particular one. And and that that's where I saw that there was a lot of people out there who were looking for tools. From there, I decided to do more research and I got family friends involved and I have even a a friend uh, from back home who's helping me out with the website and some of the marketing for it as well. So we're kind of going from strength to strength at the moment and adding new features. And the one thing I do have to say to people, and I see a lot on Product Hunter, on Indie Hacker, and the question keeps arising. And I, I know it's a bit harder to say once you have customers or users is do listen to them. And especially when you're at that early stage where you can rapidly put out stuff is even one new feature can help bring on 10 more users. And once you have an established user base and established amount of features, you can start making like priority levels then of what is more efficient than others. And I know that differs depending on the scale of the app in itself. You're working on this on the side. And in fact, it wasn't even a business for you. You didn't seem to have a revenue model up front. You didn't expect anyone to use it uh, at what point did you start thinking of it as something that you know might be a higher priority than your other side projects, and that might be something you could turn into a business? So it really kicked in on like September 2018, uh, kind of when I said, "This is six months now of me kind of traveling the world and just you know relaxing and talking to people and doing workshops and just you know getting back into the the coding world." And this is like three years after you first launched Helperbird. Yes. So it's been around for a while, uh, but it was kind of, if you go through like um, like the Wayback Machine, you'll see all the horrible designs and all the mismatched colors. And before I actually sat down and designed it, uh, it was in September. I was like, I could take this forward. 
because I said, if I was to properly focus one year at it and see how it goes, and if not, I could mm-hmm. always rejoin the company, hopefully, or, you know, if I gave, gave it my all for one year. So in October, we were in France and I decided I'm going to buy it. And I started like designing the website and I didn't buy the name. Uh, very lucky no one took it. But then in no, the start of November, I bought the name, uh, mid October, November. And from then I said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to charge $3 for it for life. But that isn't a very sustainable revenue model in the long term. So uh, the the current revenue model only came in the last three months after proper kind of mixing and matching the pricing and kind of discovering what that sweet spot was. And we discovered it was the the, the four ninety nine a cup of coffee a month or fifty dollars a year for all features and all upgrades and unlimited users if you do the educational pricing as well. But it was October, it was October, November, and I decided I'm gonna sit down and spend one year, and it's been one year more or less as of speaking to you. And I, I think it's one of the better things I've bet myself on. <laughs> yeah, it's been a pretty amazing year. I mean, you were talking about your user numbers and your growth earlier and breaking you know, 20,000 users, 30,000 users. I'm looking at your uh, product page on Eddie Hackers right now. And October, you posted a milestone where you said you broke 50,000 users, yeah. um, which is just crazy. How do you grow an app so fast? Uh, you know, uh, for a long while, because one of the things I'm proud of over some of the other educational apps is that we do zero tracking. Uh, we're COPPA and FIPA compliant. And that what that means is that you don't take any information, you don't store any information, you don't analyze any information. You just don't you don't know what the user is up to. So I don't actually know how people are using the app unless they talk to me. So when they're on live chat or they email me, I'll ask them, do you have any feedback? But in terms of growth, it, it, it literally does come down to good word and me just constantly tweeting, constantly talking to people, constantly kind of organically plugging it. And just even talking to people who are on like subreddits or even on forums saying my kid is suffering or I don't know what to do. And I'll give them it for a year or I'll give it to them for two years or I'll give them for free for life. Because for me, it's all about giving a good personal relationship because I know what these kids have gone to or even these fully grown adults and, you know, giving it away to 10 people, they'll tell 10 more people who are willing to try it out and who are willing to spread the word. And that's, that, that is probably the, the real reason it's grown. And we've had articles written without, without even pressing for it. And, it's just being kind of good-natured and honest towards people. It's definitely been the main reason for the growth, especially, as you said, from 50,000 to 65,000 in a month, just pff, my socks were off my feet when I saw that. And because we do zero tracking, I can't actually tell where they're coming from without me plowing through Google search and doing tools. In the last week, has Helpful Bird been mentioned anywhere? <laughs> You mentioned um, that there have been a few things you've invested in. For example, uh, Google Search and SEO has worked out. And just thinking about the way that Helperbird first picked up traction, when you basically weren't even using it yourself, you checked in on it and it had 2,000 users a few years ago. You know, I, I wonder how much that was just people finding it through the Chrome Web Store search. I, I do have to put a lot of credit on that. And I think because I was luckily, when I did Helperbird, even as a test, like as a side project, I did a lot of keywords unintentionally, like dyslexia, accessibility tool. And so if you search those, we're like number one across all of them. And I do think that has a lot to do with it in terms of people just organically finding us through the Chrome store. So I think it was a, a stumbled upon mistake. 
Uh, what about nowadays? Are you doing any sort of content marketing, like to intentionally, uh, you know, write articles that could help people and maybe get the app found on Google? Yeah, you know, funny enough, uh, we're doing, we're starting to do that, but only if they're actually useful, not keyword stuffing, because I think they that looks awful as a brand. Uh, so, in the, especially in the last two or three months, we've taken the brand a lot more seriously, especially with my friend who's uh, who's helping me out. You know, we're making sure all the branding's consistent and things like that. But yeah, we we're going to start writing more articles. But in college, I wrote a piece on accessibility and coloring and fonts. And that thing still gets about 500 visits a week alone. Uh, so that drives a lot of traffic just in terms of SEO. So tell me about your friend who's helping. Because uh, at some point you brought your friend on, but it was you for quite a while. Uh, how did you decide to to partner up? So my friend Rokas um, from Cork, I, I met him during college and we were working on several other little projects together. You know, we'll build this piece of software, we'll build that piece of software. And I decided to focus on Helperbird full time. And then about July of this year, he asked, he wanted to like experiment on a bigger level in terms of uh, sales and marketing and kind of a little bit of web, and web development as well. And I said, of course, you can join on and see how everything goes. And he's been a great help um, in terms of uh, uh, software testing and from the website testing and even like generating like ideas how to go forward. So, uh, you know, he's going he's gonna to be at my wedding pretty soon. So, you know, friends for life. And it's been a great ride to be with him on it as well. Yeah, it seems like everything's is is kind of blowing up for you. I mean, you're growing your team, you're growing your user base, you're growing your revenue, you're full time on this. What's the future look like? What's like the ultimate goal for Helperbird, and what do you imagine and like your best dreams? So we have some very exciting stuff. I can't just say, but in about a week's time, uh, I'll send it on to you. So some very exciting news in the next week, and then in the future, we're hoping that we're going to spread across more schools and more users, and then have a. a an iOS app potentially in the future, because that's the one major thing that people are screaming out for is an iOS app. And right. the way we have it set up is you pay once and you have it across every device. And the the goal, the end goal, is to have be the number one tool for accessibility for anyone. So be it an old person, be it an elderly person who just needs font, the font increased, we'd be the, the people who go, oh, you should get Helper Bird, kind of like when you say, oh, we should Uber there. We mm-hmm. kind of want to be that uh, into that scale, but on accessibility and tooling. But uh, for the moment, we're going to try to keep it remote, like a re- remote team first, because I believe people, for my philosophy anyway, people work their best in their own comfortable situations. And I know I found it struggling to work in a cubicle because, you know, you get distracted by chats and you only end up doing like three hours at work where I prefer right. to work in an, an actual cafe with headphones on and you know, do five hours or six hours and then like do an hour or two of calls. Yep. So I think people have a, you know, and you build up a lot more trust that way. So I, I do think it's remote first in the future. And that's one thing I'll hope to do as we grow out the team. So I'm trying to keep the team small, tight, but uh, I think about five or six people and hopefully in the future as we need. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds fun to do a remote first company. And I know you spent what, a year and a half just traveling the world. Are you planning to, to go back on the road or are you going to stay settled down? So we, we're, I'm getting married on February 29th. So as I say, I can only forget it once every four years. And we're going to do a bit of traveling and go down to Japan and then come back to the States then at that point and kind of settle down somewhere. But where that is, is a, is a good question. I'm not sure uh, quite yet. Yeah. So 
Earlier, I promised we would talk about uh, some of the challenges you've gone through, not just the good yeah. stuff. And we've talked about a lot of good stuff so far. What have been some of the hardest parts of running and, and growing Helperbird? So one of the major issues about running a Chrome app or an extension app is what I didn't realize until the error happened is if you didn't properly test the app like I did, there was a, a, a very nasty bug that if someone paid it would lock some of the the lock some of the the code away, so they couldn't use some of the features, even though they're after paying. And that was because of a prettier change, and some of the poor lines of code that were that were doing the if statements were still coming back invalid or null. So that might seem like a big issue. Just push out the patch. But the issue I discovered is that the Chrome extensions actually roll out different patches and updates over a course of a week. So if you do version one point one only like a quarter of your users are actually going to get it the same day. And then the next 10% might get it a week later. And then the it will be spread out over a couple of weeks. So then you have an issue of this nasty bug is slowly being spread out. And even if yeah. I roll out a new one, it takes a while still, for that to go out. Yeah. And I got so many complaints, users uh, left, and it was a real learning lesson. And I, yeah. and again, I just told people, I'm sorry, I'm after messing up. Here's a free month. Uh, this is a genuine mess. It won't happen again. And I put in procedures now using like uh, code validators and stuff just to make sure this doesn't happen in proper yeah. testing. That really shook my boots. Um, and then there was another situation too. And this is a big struggle. I think a lot of people listening might actually have is when you try to get promotion or try to get your app out there or your, you know, your project out there, there's a lot of places aren't willing to do it for free because they think if you're going to make money off it, they might as well make money off it as well. And how do you come across as genuine? Like, hey, I made this. Will you help me support it without going, hey, give us a thousand dollars. We'll yeah. write you up a blog post. And that was a big struggle. That was an absolute big struggle. We did uh, initially email a few places, but they were coming back. You know, we want a thousand dollars. We want two thousand. Mm -hmm. We want a re half a revenue of two referrals and you know, it's or no, we don't do paid articles, and that was a big setback because, you know, when you don't have a lot of money to do marketing, how do you go about it? And the one thing I do tell people is just, as you mentioned, just write blogs and just get involved in communities. And that's why I love indie hackers as a whole, is because even you, even people asking questions can really help. Another issue. Uh, a big issue I had was, again, the Chrome developers, as much as I love them, and I was even down at the Chrome Summit, don't do a great job when they make changes or alert people soon enough. So we had a Chrome extension that had, um, our old version had a 16 by 16 icon. And then the updated version of Chrome for Windows didn't support 16 by 16 pixel icons. So then we had a blackout of about 5,000 users who couldn't open up the app. And every time they open up Chrome, it would go, this Chrome extension couldn't load. And we got mass uninstalls. And I don't think most of those users actually came back. So there's a lot of errors and uh, cautions and issues there. Or dealing with taxes has also been an interesting one because it was a person who registered just as myself in like self-tax. But then as it grew and more people started coming in and different colleges and different high schools and different users from all around the world, that is a scary thing to deal with. <laughs> so setting up the proper structures to deal with all those has been, a lot of it's been over my head, but luckily we've had someone to come along and help set that up. And we even were using uh, Stripe Atlantis or Atlantis to set up the US-based one. 
it's funny because uh, a lot of these challenges are just challenges that you have as growing pains. You know, yes. you're you're used to working on small side projects for yourself, and so you're not testing everything, and everything's not bulletproof, and you just release changes willy nilly. But then you suddenly find yourself with a huge user base, and it's like risky. <laughs> you have to change your habits <laughs> and change the way that you're used to writing code. Do you feel like you like? Do you find that you like? Being, you know, running a bigger company that you like, uh, sort of added responsibility, or do you miss sort of running the smaller side projects? You know, it's funny if when I was working at uh, Teamwork.com, the CTO and CEO Dan Mackey and uh, Peter Carpenter, I when I was an intern with them, I was number thirteen, I think, employee, and then when I left, it was like two hundred and twenty. So I saw that scale happen, and I learned a lot from their philosophies, and I didn't really appreciate it until this started growing. And I know they listen to this, so they're, they're going to say thank you, first of all. And But I didn't understand why they were doing certain things until I grew into these pains. And I appreciate it more, and I do like the scaling a lot more. It's a more challenging, but I do have these old side projects I do work on, besides Helper Bird in my spare time. But uh, no, I enjoy the growing pains, and it's interesting, and it's, you know, I always try to make sure I do 50-50 in terms of development and, you know, growing pains and management and CEO or founder type stuff. <laughs> what have you found to be the most helpful for you and your journey and just supporting you as a founder, learning things that you don't know yet? Uh, are there books that you read, are mentors that you turn to? Uh, yeah, I, I find, you know, it might sound cliche, is friends and family, especially for periods where I would be uncontactable for like three weeks or very hard to get a hold of them just guiding me through and saying, you know, I them giving me honest feedback or like saying, Rob, I think you're going down the, the, the wrong path here with this feature or this, this strategy. Or even my pal Rokas saying, just giving me feedback going, I don't think this is right or I think this is the right direction. And then I had former work colleagues who I go to and even indie hackers as a whole. And I know this sounds like a plug. It's it's generally a good site because you start... Feel free to plug indie hackers oh, all you want. <laughs> oh, I will. I didn't want to do it too much. So... When I go on there, I find every question under the hood and people are giving different feedback and different levels of growth from small people to big people. I even saw one person who sold to uh, past one million in recurring revenue and that was just amazing. And, you know, there he is writing a blog post and that that is a very rare thing to have. And the, the, the most amazing thing I found about indie hackers versus the rest is how friendly everyone is. And genuinely friendly versus where if you go into some other sites, it, it, you're ripped to shreds for just asking a simple question about taxes or, you know, you're an idiot. You should have known this. And yeah. so I do put a lot of credit there and I do put a lot of credit to Product Hunt as well, because Product Hunt in the last few months, I've noticed have it used to be a lot of friends upvoting friends from communities. Mm-hmm. And they've kind of balanced that out now where I don't know how their algorithm works now, but it's a lot more fair. And I think even seeing what people are actually building and their feedback they're getting is valuable for when you're growing your own because, again, there's different levels of scale there. And I try to listen to a lot of uh, How I Built This uh, with Guy Raz. I think that is so fascinating and you learn a lot from founder stories there. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this who are founders or aspiring founders who also have dyslexia. And I've never had anyone on the podcast who's either had (laughs) dyslexia or, or said they have, so... I would love to to have you share some advice for founders who are struggling with dyslexia or other learning disabilities and how they can you know go ahead and build something that's successful or uh, really do their best and feel good about it. 
So the only bit of advice I give people is that you should never be ashamed of it. And I, I think that runs through with any disability or quirk people might have, is that if you tell people you have dyslexia, they'll never say it again. They'll never make fun of you. If anything, they'll think you're more inspirational in dyslexia's stance, considering all the other famous entrepreneurs that had it, like um, uh, Steve Jobs or uh, Richard Branson, just the two at the top of my head. You should never give up. And and I mean that even I make spelling mistakes all the time. And I even misspelled my fiance's name on our boarding passes recently. And we had to call up the airport <laughs> quite quickly. Is that even if you make the mistakes and you own it, people will always be more inspired and trustworthy of you. Is that you made a mistake, even be, be it a spelling or being more honest, people respect you a lot more. And with that respect, it, it gets you further in places. Especially even if you're talking to someone online going, hey, I'm sorry, I misunderstood this message, but here's here it is. It might be a little bit late. And that's a lot better than not replying back at all in that situation. And the other thing is, is just consistency. And I saw this thread on Indie Hackers about people launching on Product Hunt or launching on Indie Hackers or launching on other places and giving up when it doesn't go well or only goes okay. And that's why I always tell people to try to stick to a, in YouTube, they say like an upload schedule, but in software or even products, just stick to an update schedule. And I try to do it every two weeks. Uh, some days I miss it a little bit, but every Friday, every two weeks, uh, there's a new update, even a small one, a big one, just something. And I think with that, I've noticed that we're encouraged by the SEO a lot more. And people are saying, oh, this is constantly being maintained and updated and yeah. a lot more trust. I found the same thing with the podcast. Consistency really works. And I love the fact that you pointed out that people find it easy to give up when things don't go well. It's back to that feedback cycle. You know, you launch, no one uses it, you start a business, it doesn't work out, and it's easy to get discouraged and stop. But if you've got this feedback or this um, sort of consistent schedule you're working towards and you're not sort of reacting to how people react to what you're putting out, but you're reacting to your schedule, so it doesn't really matter what the reception is, you're still going to release something new in another two weeks, then I think that's a great way to get more shots on goal and uh, keep going. Yeah, and it's actually, yeah, you, start, you talked about like um, issues or mistakes or problems I had. Just one more I thought I'd throw in is if you people listen and go on the product hunt, we actually launched three times over the course of a year and a half because uh, you allow every six months. The first one, we got 100 upvotes, which was very good in my book. We didn't end up, I think we ended up number five in the day. The second one, we only got 40 and it was awful. And <laughs> But, and then, it wasn't any real traction. And the third time we did, we ended up with 500. And it was just, again, consistency and just learning from the mistakes that were previously done, which were we rushed it. We didn't explain ourselves correctly. The copy was a mistake. Um, we didn't have enough features. And it was by the third time came around, that was the one that kind of set the goal alight or set the match alight. <laughs> Well, listen, Robert, it's been um, inspirational to hear how you've learned from your mistakes and gotten to where you are today. And I wish you the best. I'm looking forward to um, more of the milestones that you're posting with your insane growth oh, on Indie Hackers. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about Helperbird and also follow along with your story? So if you want to learn more about Helperbird, you can go on uh, helperbird.com. Uh, we're Helperbird on most social medias. And then if you want to follow me, I'm Robert J. Gabriel on everything from Twitter, GitHub, LinkedIn, 
uh, happy to answer any questions and my DMs are always open. Uh, I just like talking to people. It's the gift of being Irish. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Robert. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. Listeners, if you're interested in receiving the newsletter for the Indie Hackers podcast, I send it out every Monday with each new episode. You just get my thoughts on every episode, my takeaways, and what I thought was interesting. That's at ndhackers.com slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time.